And Paul is going to read our scripture this morning. It's from Revelation chapter 1. I'll give you just a minute, a moment to get there. Revelation chapter 1. And Paul is going to start reading at verse number 9, and he's going to read down through verse 18. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, like uh, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Um, his hairs on his head were white, uh, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. His voice was like that of, was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But... He laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Thanks, Paul. No one knew Jesus better than John. By the time John writes his gospel, he had already read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And as Jesus was hanging on the cross, he asked John to take his mother Mary into his home and to care for her as his own mother. I don't imagine John asked Mary, did you know? I suspect John asked Mary lots of questions about what was it like to have a son like Jesus? What was he like as a child? What was he like as a teenager? No one knew Jesus in his early years better than John. And no one knew Jesus better than John as a man either. John was one of Jesus' first followers. He was part of that inner circle of three disciples who followed Jesus for three years. In his gospel, John writes about Jesus being excited and exhausted 
He writes about him being thirsty. He writes about him crying. John knew Jesus as a man. And John also had direct knowledge of Jesus' death and resurrection. Only John of the disciples that we know of, only John observed Jesus' trials. And only John was there at the foot of the cross. John outraced Peter to the tomb on Resurrection Sunday to confirm the testimony of the women, and their testimony was true. The tomb really was empty. John saw Jesus alive in the upper room and also at the Sea of Galilee when Jesus made them a wonderful breakfast. John was there when Jesus ascended into heaven. No one knew the crucified and risen Jesus better than the Apostle John. And yet, in spite of all that John knew about Jesus, something is still missing. And like John, I wonder if something maybe is missing in our view of Jesus. To know Jesus as a baby, as the perfect man, as the sacrifice for sin, as the risen Son of God, these are essential things to know about Jesus. And I am thrilled that the Scripture reveals Jesus in all of these wonderful ways to us. But if our view of Jesus stops there, then our view of Jesus is incomplete It's incomplete unless if we also see Jesus as He is right now, exalted in heaven, reigning with irresistible power and blinding glory. John needs this vision of Jesus to encourage him in faithful fearlessness. And like John, we need to be encouraged towards faithful fearlessness. This world and everything in it is ravaged by the effects of sin. Suffering and sickness make life hard. Persecution seems inevitable, doesn't it? Christian, you may be called on to choose death or faith in Jesus. What is going to motivate your choice? With John and the seven churches to whom he wrote, we need this glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ. We need this glimpse of the glory of our reigning, resurrected Savior. We need a complete complete view of Jesus so that... So that, like the faithful who have gone before us, we live like we'll never die. The opening verses of our text tell us that John is on the rocky island of Patmos. This is just off the west coast of Asia Minor. Now, this is not like being on the rocky island of Hawaii. 
That would be nice. John is not on vacation. Patmos is the place where the Roman Empire dropped off prisoners so that they didn't have to care for them and they would die. You might think of Alcatraz, but worse. John is exiled on this island, and he is being persecuted for his faith, for his loyalty in Jesus. And one Sunday morning, I love that detail in the text, one Sunday morning, John is in the Spirit. In other words, he has set his affection and his attention on Jesus, like we do every Sunday morning when we gather here. He's in the Spirit, and John hears a loud voice behind him like a trumpet, I can't imagine what that may have sounded like, but I suspect because John used the word trumpet, we are supposed to realize that this voice was unmistakably clear. There was no ambiguity or confusion about what this voice said. And the voice says, write what you are about to see. Look at verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. How wonderfully gracious of Jesus. Jesus tells John to write the book of Revelation. Why? Because Jesus wants his people to have a complete view of him. Jesus wants his people to know about his glory. Kids, are you still with me? If you could see Jesus right now, What do you think he looks like? Any takers on that one? This is a harder question than whether mom or dad is a better driver, isn't it? No takers on what Jesus looks like right now? All right, let's see what the Bible says. Look what John sees when he turns around. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one, like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. 
John turns to see who speaks with this voice like a trumpet. And as he whirls around, he sees one like the Son of Man. Do you see it there in verse number 13? One like a Son of Man. Now, readers of the Hebrew Bible would recognize this phrase, Son of Man. It comes from their prophet, Daniel. Daniel saw a vision. A vision of four terrifying beasts. Each one was more terrifying than the one before. And the fourth beast, it was so ferocious, Daniel says, It had giant iron teeth, and it just crushed everything that was in its path. This fourth beast represents the Roman Empire, the empire that is right now persecuting John and other Christians. But then Daniel sees something unexpected. It's not a fifth beast. He doesn't see a fifth beast. He sees one like a son of man, a human one. And this human one is exalted up to God's throne, and he receives worship and glory and a kingdom that is never conquered, that lasts forever. He sees a human who rules a global, diverse kingdom. Look at Daniel chapter 7. This is verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like, do you see it? A son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." John whirls around to see this voice that is speaking to him, and immediately he sees, he recognizes, he understands this Son of Man is Jesus. And Jesus is the one that Daniel prophesied about. Jesus is exalted on God's throne. Jesus is receiving worship. Jesus is the ruler of this global kingdom that is unconquerable and will last forever. What do you think this vision of Jesus meant to John? What did it mean to the seven churches that he wrote to? We are so familiar 
in this country with presidents that it's hard for us to grasp what life was like for Christians in the Roman Empire. Rome wasn't portrayed as this ferocious beast with giant crushing teeth for no reason. Caesar ruled with ferocious crushing power. No one dared challenge the authority of Caesar. No one, that is, until Christians refused to say Caesar is Lord and instead boldly declared Jesus is Lord. Caesar will tolerate no rivals, he is insecure. And the punishment for treason like this was intense, relentless persecution and death. What do you think it meant to John to see this vision of Jesus? What did it mean to these seven churches to whom John wrote to see this vision of Jesus? In Daniel's prophecy, God's people were promised one like the Son of Man, And in John's vision, he proclaims Jesus is the Son of Man that Daniel promised. Jesus is the human one, exalted to God's throne. Jesus right now is reigning with irresistible power and blinding glory. Jesus is the ruler of this inconquerable kingdom that will never end. This vision is exactly what John needed. It's exactly what the seven churches needed. And Christians, this is what we need. If we are going to be faithful, if we are going to be fearless, then we need this vision of Jesus. When John saw Jesus, he did what any other sane person would do. He fell at Jesus' feet like a dead man. And then he hears Jesus speak. Listen, verse number 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. What is Hades? It is the, the, the home of the dead What does Jesus mean when he says, I have the keys of death and Hades? Keys represent authority, control, responsibility. What do teenagers want? They want the keys to the car, right? They want the keys to the car. 
so they can go and do what they want. They want authority and responsibility, power, so that they can get to the places that they want to get to. Perhaps you have a key or maybe an, an electronic key fob that gets you into your workplace. Imagine having a key that opens every cell in a prison. That's a lot of authority, isn't it? That's a lot of power, a lot of control. Jesus holds the master key to death and Hades. Jesus possesses the authority to open every cell in the dungeon of death. How did Jesus get these keys? What gives him this kind of authority? Well, Jesus tells us. He declares himself to be the living one. I don't want us to miss this little phrase. We are not living ones. We may be alive right now, but do you know what we are? We're all dying ones, aren't we? Every day gets us closer to the day when this physical body will give out, but not Jesus. He is the living one. How did Jesus get these keys? What gives him this authority? Well, he died. Jesus declares it, I died, but he is alive forevermore. But we should ask ourselves this question, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? It was not for his sin. It was not for any rebellion that he committed against God's law. It was not for any stubbornness in his heart or deceitfulness in his mouth that required him to die on the cross. No, Jesus had no sin of his own. Why did Jesus die? Jesus died for guilty ones. He died for sinners like you and me for people who have broken God's law, for people who have rebelled against God, for people who are filled up inside with stubbornness and and wanting our own way, self-centered in all of our pursuits. Jesus died in the place of sinners like you and me. Here's the amazing, wonderful, glorious thing about Resurrection Sunday. When Jesus died, he had no sin of his own. And he had paid for all of the sins of his people on the cross. So when Jesus dies, there is nothing that death can do to hold on to him. He lays down his life and dies. And then hear this beats death at its own game. 
He has the authority to lay down his life and the authority three days later to take up his life. That's why Jesus can declare himself to be the living one, the one who died but is alive forevermore. Are you trusting in this one who died and is alive forevermore? Do you believe that he is your only hope of being right with God? Is Jesus your only hope for eternal life? On that first Resurrection Sunday, Jesus claims the keys of death and Hades. And listen, Jesus will never, ever borrow these keys to anyone. John sees Jesus risen, glorified, and possessing absolute authority over life and over death. And John hears Jesus say, fear not. What do you think this vision meant to John? What does it mean to the seven churches that he wrote to? What should it mean to us? John gets up from the ground and he is confident that Jesus Christ is king. Confident that Jesus is reigning and ruling right now with unrivaled power and control. Confident that persecution and even death is no threat to the follower of Jesus. This is what faithful fearlessness looks like. This means you also, follower of Jesus, citizen of his kingdom, you too can live like you will never die. What do I mean when I say that? I'm not talking about extreme sports. Not talking about taking foolish risks. Not talking about neglecting your body. When I say you may live like you never die, I mean living like Jesus really is holding the keys of death. I mean living with such unwavering conviction that the moment death gets one of his sisters or brothers, Jesus springs them from the cell of death and welcomes them into eternal life. Living like you'll never die means greater boldness in proclaiming the gospel. It means patient resolve when persecution comes for us. It means humble courage if God calls you to be a martyr. Living like you'll never die means giving up what you think you're entitled to and serving others, taking up your cross and doing hard things. 
fostering children, standing up for the abused, sheltering the abandoned, comforting the sick. Living like you'll never die means pursuing reconciliation even when it hurts and it feels like it's one-sided. It means parenting your kids with grace even when it's exhausting and you want to quit. means that we will disciple one another with intentionality, even when we would rather be lazy. Living like you'll never die means standing at the grave of a loved one in Christ and grieving, but not without hope. Whether cancer or a car accident or old age finally gets you, living like you'll never die means remembering death cannot hold those who are in Christ. Living like you'll never die means though we can't see the future and we don't know what God may have in store for us, living like you'll never die means remembering that God's promises to us in Jesus are more glorious, more wonderful, more thrilling than we can ever imagine. Whatever you are facing, whatever you are feeling, Whatever you are fighting, by faith, see Jesus right now, exalted in heaven. See Him reigning with irresistible power and blinding glory. Remember that His kingdom cannot be conquered and will never end. Remember that Jesus, the living one, holds the keys of death. He holds the keys to every cell in death's dungeon. Child of God, that means you can live with faithful fearlessness. You can live like you'll never die. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's so good and so needed today. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to be with us. Thank you for moving among us and doing things in our hearts through the preaching of your word. Perhaps you would be so kind and gracious to stir up fresh faith in your people today. Give us courage, confidence, Resolve. Give us strength to persevere. Thank you for holding on to us tighter than we could ever hold on to you. Father, thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to do business in the hearts of people in this room who have never trusted in Jesus. And they don't believe that Jesus is their only hope. 
and they're not sure if they have a relationship with you. By the power of your Holy Spirit and through the preaching of your word, draw sinners today to faith in Jesus. Grant them faith and repentance so that they respond by repenting and believing this glorious gospel that it's been my distinct privilege to proclaim. Thank you for being with us. Please continue to be with us as we continue to celebrate the resurrection and the rule and the reign of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray, giving thanks. Amen.